And it is a great pleasure to welcome to the program for the second hour, Thomas Fleming, uh, a <coughs> major figure in American literary life, both as a novelist and as an historian. Um, and, sir, it's as historian that you've given us this uh, really quite startling new book, The Great Divide. The subtitle gives us uh, the topic for the day, The Conflict Between Washington and Jefferson That Defined a Nation. You are suggesting that they were not um, uh, the best of friends. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, I came across a story uh, early in my research for the book that convinced me that I was onto something. Uh, after George died, uh, a congressman from New Hampshire came down to visit Martha while he was attending, while he was uh, working, you know, in Washington, D.C. And uh, they got talking, and, and Martha said the two worst days of her life were one, the day that George died, and two, the day that Thomas Jefferson came to pay his condolences. Hmm. But uh, that, that runs against the general sense we have that uh, all of them, the founding fathers, were a band of brothers. Uh, who, yeah, uh, they weren't. <laughs> they weren't. <laughs> uh, well, you know, they had a lot of antagonisms. They were a band of brothers about some things, such as winning the war and keeping their heads on their shoulders uh, and things like that. But they they had very strongly differing, differing opinions about a lot of things, the French Revolution being the, one of the big items. Uh, well, Jefferson, of course, was a great fan of the French Revolution. Uh, yes, he he called it his polar star. Yeah. Uh, what was Washington's attitude towards that revolution? We uh, had a good deal to do with uh, sort of stirring things up over in France so that uh, uh, that nation's royalty, which had supported us and helped us to win our Revolutionary War, ultimately was toppled, and many of them uh, had their heads chopped off on the guillotine. Yes, yes. Uh, Washington was very unhappy when he heard the news that King Louis the Sixteenth had been de decapitated. Uh, Jefferson saw him around that time, and Jefferson kept a little diary, that, uh, which was later published as his Anas, A-N-A-S, and uh, uh, he uh, he said he'd never seen Washington so depressed or this, uh, you know, very very cast down uh, when he heard the news of of the king being. Killed because the king was the man who really uh, said yes, let's do it, and Washington regarded him as uh, the linchpin of their relationship. And uh, when 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 the revolution decapitated him, uh, that was the end of Washington's uh, positive view of the revolution. You are, of course, uh, an historian of the American Revolution. You've done some fifty books in your lifetime. Some of them novels, to be sure, but many yes. of them also concerned with the history of important aspects of the American Revolution. Would you agree with the judgment that you get it from some historians, if not from all, that um, without French assistance and intervention, uh, essentially, there was no guarantee that uh, America would have won its revolutionary uh, uprising and become an independent nation? I, I agree completely with that. There's no doubt about it. Only last night, uh, uh, I was downtown, and I was in downtown New York, uh, to attend a uh, a reception that the that the, lo the lower New York Historical Society—that's all the people down around the Battery and that sort of thing—a yeah. lot of history down there. Uh, they were they were having a reception to announce plans to welcome this ship, the Hermione, which uh, brought Lafayette back to America in 1780, 
And when he arrived in April, late April of 1780, aboard this very, it was a new ship in those in that, at that time. Uh, when he arrived in Boston, the news he got was really bad. The American Revolution looked like it was going down the tubes. The British had won all kinds of victories in the South. The dollar had turned into waste paper, the continental currency that they printed. It was, the, the phrase, not worth a continental, had become almost a sarcastic remark. And uh, Lafayette brought with him news that pumped new life into the revolution. He told them that the king was sending an army to help the Americans and a fleet. Uh, big enough to take on the British fleet. And, oh, my God, it really did change. It transformed uh, the, the, the depressed mood into which the Americans were sinking. How many French combatants were actually involved on our side? Do we know that? Uh, I once said, I did a book on the Battle of Yorktown, which is, uh, most people know, was, was a, the, the climactic victory of the war. Yeah. And the French fleet played a big role in this. They came up from the West Indies and they trapped uh, the British Army in this little tobacco port of Yorktown. And meanwhile, Washington and the French Army, led by uh, Count Rochambeau, marched from New York down and they trapped them on the land side. And after a siege of a few weeks, uh, he surrendered. And... Uh, I, I, computing the number of Frenchmen, if you count all the sailors in the French fleet, there were 29,000 Frenchmen at Yorktown and 12,000 Americans. Isn't that an interesting quantitative demonstration yes. of the importance yes. of France in our revolution? Of course, the essential strategy was to do a naval blockade, French ships around Yorktown, so that Cornwallis could not get his men um, out and back to New York or anyplace else. They That's were right. simply uh, caught uh, with their guns down, so to speak, and they had to surrender. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, and Lafayette played a, a very big part in, in, in creating this through his, his intercession in France. He went back to France the uh, year before, 79, and spent a, a lot of time lobbying desperately for the Americans. And Lafayette was, well, I, don't, I don't know how many people know just how influential Lafayette was. He he came from one of the leading families of France, and he was immensely wealthy. Uh, he'd inherited it all from his mother and his father. And uh, so he, he, he had, when, when Lafayette said something, uh, a lot of people listened to him. He had relatives all scattered all through the French government. And so he had a lot to do with persuading the French to take this final step yeah. of sending an army and this larger fleet uh, they had made a few attempts to help the Americans, mostly with a fleet, but nothing worked. Uh, the British were pretty good at fighting off uh, the French intrusion and so forth. But uh, so, so, but finally, Lafayette got uh, a lot of what he was hoping to get, and uh, the result was this miraculous victory. It, it, it ends. It's a, there's a great line that goes with it. I recited this last night, for, uh, and I spoke to this group down in Lower Manhattan. Uh, they about uh, oh well, six weeks after Cornwallis surrendered, the news got to London, and uh, one of the uh, uh, the American um, the minister in charge of American affairs had to go tell the prime minister, who was a pudgy little guy named Lord North, and he paced up and down his apartment, and he said, 
oh my God, it's all over. Uh-huh. It's all over. It uh, <laughs> affected. It was. <laughs> it affected George the Third very seriously as well. Oh, tremendously! Threw yeah. him into a state of depression. It uh, did, and a lot of people think he then lost his mind. Yes. However, we've we've since discovered that he had a a congenital disease that afflicted him every so often, yeah. especially in his later years, and he would be crazy for weeks at a time. But it, it didn't really have anything to do with the defeat in in America. Uh, however, he was he was depressed. There's no question about it. When the American Expeditionary Force in World War One uh, begins to land, somebody says Lafayette. Uh, we are here. Is that General Pershing who says that, or who, who was it exactly? Uh, no, that, that's a, that everybody for for decades. Everybody thought it was General Pershing, but a little inv- historical investigation revealed that Pershing realized his French accent was terrible, <laughs> and so he had one of his colonels who spoke very good French say it. It was it was Lafayette. Nous sommes arrivés. Uh, Lafayette. Nous sommes ici. I'm not sure. What the exact utterance in French would have been. Yeah, my French isn't very good either. So, but I let us volunteer. let us turn <laughs> to it, uh, it was a it was a very moving thing to say, and it, but it, it's interesting that Lafayette is not regarded highly in France these yeah. days. Well, he, 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 there, there's an article in the Smith, the current Smithsonian magazine, uh-huh. a very good magazine, I might add, in which uh, the writer uh, goes into how many contemporary Frenchmen have a low opinion of Lafayette. Uh, because he didn't support the extreme uh, swing that the revolution took. In the beginning, he was one of the leaders of the revolution in France. I mean, he thought he could preserve the king and have just have uh, work it out so they'd have a constitutional monarchy, something like England. But things got completely out of hand when when these radical uh, radicals in in the legislature, the Jacobins, as yeah. they were called, right. when they took over. Uh, that's when the blood started to flow. Let us come to the crucial relationship uh, that your book, The Great Divide, is particularly focused upon, namely the trouble between Washington and Jefferson. And one yeah. might begin by raising this sort of confused question, but uh, it wasn't there a sign of real cooperation between them in that, after all, Jefferson was Secretary of State to President Washington? Yes, he was there by Washington's invitation, and until that time, they there was a there were a great deal there was a great deal of mutual admiration and respect between the two men. But when Jefferson came back from uh, five years in France, he had a lot of ideas that uh, didn't jive too well with Washington's and and a lot of other Americans. He had been in France for five years as our ambassador. Yes, right, right, yes, and. Uh, for instance, he had a, one of his ideas, which he tried out on his friend James Madison, was the earth belongs to the living. This was one of the wilder ideas that they that were generated in the, during the French Revolution. The idea is it comes down to this: Jefferson uh, argued that every generation should form its own government, and every 19 years. That, that's why he estimated that the, the life of a generation's power. Every 19 years, uh, a generation goes out of power, and a new generation can cancel all the deaths from the previous 19 years. And they can also form their own government, and they can call a constitutional convention and junk the old constitution what the, that they had, etc. And can you imagine doing this every 19 years? You know, in some strange way, it rather reminds me of Mao Zedong. Because we have that further quotation by Jefferson that uh, 
a revolution is kept going by replenishing the blood uh, every 19 or 20 years. In other words, oh, no, no, no bloodshed. You know, I, 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 you've reminded me that I've forgotten that quotation. That is a very good comparison. And that yeah. is the way some revolutionists uh, think. Well, that's the way Mao Zedong uh, thought about and justified uh, the, uh, uh, the cultural revolution, which was a renewal of the communist revolution in China. Yes, yes, and that one, that turned into a gigantic slaughter. No of course, and I, I the, the the dreadful quote that I that I have in the book uh, from uh, uh, Robespierre, the head of the Jacobins, for a while. Yeah. He he said the revolution consists of the extermination of all those who are opposed to it. Yes, well, that was the reign of terror, of course, and yeah. uh, its its ultimate victim was Robespierre himself. Who, yes, uh, ultimately, yes. The General somebody... Assembly revolted against him, <clears throat> imprisoned him. Uh, sh- uh, he tried to shoot himself. All he did was uh, sort of shatter his jaw, and then he yes. lay around in total pain for about 24 hours until they guillotined him. Yes, yes. Interesting God. people. Yeah, they really were pretty bad, pretty bad. Uh, uh, it, was, it, it, was a, it was a tragedy all the way, you know. Uh, and and Jeff, the interesting thing, though, is that Jefferson— refused to listen to these stories of what was going wrong with the French Revolution. By the time Robespierre came aboard, uh, Lafayette had been forced to flee for his life, and he was captured by the Austrians, who were, had an army on France's border, and he spent five years in an Austrian jail. And that was another reason why Washington took a very dim view of the French Revolution, because he really thought of Lafayette as a son. He had no children of his own, and the, the, and Lafayette's father had been killed uh, in a battle at the age of two, uh, at, at, when Lafayette was was two, and so uh, the, these two people found them. They really were deeply attracted to each other. Uh, at one point, when Lafayette was wounded in the leg uh, at the Battle of the Brandywine in 1778, uh, uh, Washington uh, 1777, I mean Washington turned to his personal doctor and said, take care of him as if he were my own son. Yeah. <clears throat> but let, back to Jefferson and Washington. What yes, sort yes. of Secretary of State was Jefferson? What was the nature of that relationship in that phase of their lives? Uh, he was a very good Secretary of State in many ways. Uh, most most, of all, most all, above all, in, in uh, putting together papers to, to communications to other countries and that sort of thing. He, w- he was a very gifted writer, and he, he was able to say things in, in a polished way that didn't offend the uh, people who were getting the letter. He, 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 uh, he, he really uh, uh, was, was very good in that department. Yes, one he, should remember, of course, the Declaration of Independence, which is a magisterial document. Yes, no doubt about it. And uh, although I, I, my friend Pauline Mayer, who was a, recently died, but she was a brilliant professor of history at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, she wrote a book called American Scripture, and uh, she points out in that book that uh, most of the Declaration had been written in advance for Jefferson by declarations of independence from other states. Uh, A lot of of people were issuing declarations during the year 1776. And uh, also that she pointed out that Congress threw out the last half of Jefferson's declaration and wrote their own version. 
but still, those that opening paragraph that Jefferson wrote, where uh, every man is entitled to life, liberty, sure. and the pursuit of happiness, that's what made the uh, the American Revolution a global event. We're uh, about to pause for the usual reasons on commercial radio. Uh, when sure. we return, it's time to take a look at these two men in terms of what we can decode about their separate characters or personalities and what <clears throat> may have gone wrong in their relationship by virtue of the different kinds of people they were, as well as, of course, examining what issues they ultimately differed upon. So we return to further conversation on these matters with Tom Fleming, author of The Great Divide, right after these words. Thomas Fleming is our guest during this hour of the program, and we're drawing from his excellent new book, The Great Divide, The Conflict Between Washington and Jefferson That Defined a Nation. The publishers, by the way, De Capo. <clears throat> when do they first uh, meet? How do they first form any sort of friendly relationship at all? Uh, Washington and Jefferson were both in the Virginia legislature at the same time, and so they got to know each other in a rather polite and somewhat distant way. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, this is that the House of Burgesses went off to take command of the army. And this is the House of Burgesses before uh, the revolution begins. Uh, I, as far as I know, they did not have a, a, a particular friendship. They weren't their 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 homes were not close to each other. Yeah, and uh, you know there there wasn't any easy communication uh, in Virginia. They might have met. A lot of people went uh, to Williamsburg, uh, the capital at the time. Uh, to enjoy the Washington, for instance, was a great theater goer, and he went there quite often to go to plays. Uh, but I find no evidence that Jefferson was particularly interested in that. But they might have met there uh, just at a, at a social gathering or something like that. But it was they were considerably different, uh, younger. You know, Jefferson was ten years younger than Washington, which is a, a new generation in a way, and uh, so there wasn't a, 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 a too much likelihood of them having much in common, especially since. Washington had had a military career during the French and Indian War, which made him the most famous soldier in Virginia. And while Jefferson had practically no interest in military matters. Of course, they get to know each other much better in Philadelphia uh, yeah. when um, uh, the uh, nascent Congress is facing the question of whether or not to break, fully break away from uh, England. Right, right. Uh, Washington, of course, left in 1775 to go up and take command of the army outside Boston, and Jefferson stayed in Philadelphia and became part of the committee to draft the, the Declaration. And John Adams, a very shrewd politician from Massachusetts, saw that it was going to be very important to have Virginia, the largest state, we we that's always a it was I remember that was a shock to me when I first heard it, but Virginia was a gigantic state in those days. It included West Virginia and it claimed land all the way to the Pacific Ocean, huh. and uh, uh, so uh, it was very important to have leaders from Virginia participating in this revolution which New England had started, and so that's why. Uh, uh, Adams suggested that Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence uh, if for the same motive, with the same motive as he had proposed Washington to command the army. During the Revolutionary War, Jefferson is noteworthy for his absence. That is to say, he's on diplomatic missions um, back in Europe. Is that right? No, no. He he became governor. He didn't go. He, he was offered a few possible. They 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 wanted him to go on diplomatic missions. So that comes later in his career. 
down, yeah. The, 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 his his trip to Europe began in 1784, but uh, you know, three but years. Did he do and, any fighting during the revolution as such? Well, he was governor of Virginia, uh, so if he was supposedly in command of the troops that Virginia. But he wasn't to, in. He uh, wasn't in the field commanding. Uh, no, actual. no. They, they, at one point, they asked, they urged him to go into the field uh, because uh, Virginia was uh, pretty harassed by British invasions during sure. his two terms. He had two one-year terms, but he absolutely refused. He he knew he had no talent in this area, and he also. Uh, but the, the, Jefferson had a lot of problems with governing, as I, I point this out in the book. He, he, he was very good at writing laws and, and, and drawing up uh, statements of principle and that sort of thing. But as far as it, when it came to executing the law, making people obey it and so forth, he didn't like to do it and he didn't have much talent for it. At one point, uh, the, the uh, European volunteer, the Baron von Steuben, uh, sort of reproached Jefferson because the militia weren't turning out in Virginia to, to help defend the state against a British invasion. And Jefferson said, I am only responsible for issuing the order. I am not responsible for enforcing it. <laughs> now, that's not an exact quote, I should add. Yeah. But it's, that's basically what he said. And, you know, that, where, where did that leave you? Uh, and so after two years, he was so sick of this job. Uh, it, it, things were so bad. At one point, in, towards the end of his second year, one of his best friends said, I am embarrassed to call myself a Virginian because there was a British army of 7,000 men rampaging through the state. And he, Jefferson had begged Washington to come down and fight, but Washington had his hands full up in the north. But he did send the Marquis de Lafayette down. But this is a glimpse of how pathetic things were at this point in the American Revolution. The most men he could give Lafayette were 1,200. He was sent to Virginia to fight Cornwallis, a very good general, uh, with who had 7,000 men. And Lafayette remarked, I haven't got enough men to be even beaten dis- decently. Yes. <laughs> what do we know about uh, the impressions they formed of each other uh, early on uh, in uh, the history of the country? Um, uh, the Jefferson had a very good impression of Washington, and he stated it roundly and in, in, in more than once because he turned down the offer, uh, the, the urging of a lot of people that he disperse the Continental Congress and do an Oliver Cromwell and become a Lord High Protector. Or maybe King George the First, for all we know. Who was inviting at him any, to? At any rate, who was Washington, inviting him to do that? He wouldn't do it. Washington absolutely wouldn't do it. Uh, he, he, there were officers in his army urged him to do it. Yeah. And he, there's where I think Washington deserves a, a title that a recent biographer gave him: a, a realistic visionary. He did really believe in uh, the ideals of the Declaration of Independence and the idea that liberty was a primary value and so forth. Uh, and, and he wasn't going to be the man to, to destroy it in, uh, in America after fighting for it. So uh, he, that, in, that, in, in that area, he was, uh, he was remarkable, and Jefferson praised him for it. Now, he, he was eager to forgive Jefferson for the, for the disasters that befell him while he was governor. But Jefferson couldn't forgive a lot of other people. Uh, one of the members of the Virginia legislature, when Jefferson announced he would not seek a third term, this member stood up and said that they thought they, he, he called for an investigation of Jefferson's conduct as governor with, the, uh, with an eye to uh, impeaching him. And Jefferson 
was so overwhelmed and, and absolutely almost destroyed by this mere threat uh, of, of this disgraceful fate that he had told James Madison he would never again hold public office. That that's a, a tremendous difference between the two men, you know. Because Washington had lots of critics while he was general uh, of the army. They didn't like the way he he, he delayed the war. He, he he Washington changed the strategy of the war. It began the strategy of the war with the, which Congress had concocted in 1775 and six was we were going to win in one big battle, and. <clears throat> When Washington realized that the British were sending the biggest army they ever sent overseas, and after they beat the living hell out of them in the Battle of Long Island in 1776, Washington did something that is, was truly remarkable in military history. While everybody else was panicking, he kept his head and he said, he wrote a letter to Congress saying, from now on, we will never risk every, everything in one uh, general action, as they called it. Instead, we shall protract the war. And that was the key to victory. Yeah. Well, of course, lots of people don't remember. <clears throat> I find many of my college students don't have never heard of the fact that um, at the end of the revolution, uh, the uh, we didn't have the present United States. We had the Articles of Confederation, yeah. Uh, which was a very different sort of thing. And uh, Washington doesn't become president until uh, the Continental Congress rewrites it all and does the Constitution and sets up the system that we still yeah, uh, celebrate yeah, eight years today. Later. Yeah. Right, right. Eight years after Yorktown and three years, uh, six years after the Treaty of Peace was signed. So, uh, yes, it, it, well, most people don't realize that, 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 uh, that it took a long time for us to realize this, these Articles Confederation conferred full power to rule the country on Congress. And what Washington decided while he watched Congress flounder through the eight years of the war and thereafter do try to run the country, he decided that there was no way that Congress could do the job. What they needed was leadership. And that is and the institution of the presidency, of course. Exactly. And it was George Washington, in, in conversation with Madison, beginning in 1785, that, real, that, that, that the, the two of them realized that they both agreed that there had to be uh, a, a leader of Congress, and that should be a president who Washington believed should be co-equal to Congress. Yeah. And, and it was, uh, it's, it's great. You know, I, uh, Milt, if I may. Please. Uh, just add a, t a touch here that I've never forgotten. I once wrote a book uh, about Harry Truman, and I, I spent two weeks out there with him in, in Independence when he was 86 years old. I, I co-authored it with his uh, daughter, Margaret, and it's now out as an e-book, incidentally. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and, and uh, I remember one night I was chatting with Truman over a bourbon. We always He, he loved his dog, bourbons, and he, he got talking about the presidency. And now, uh, I'm sure, I hope you'll agree, Truman was a pretty well-read guy. He had a very, very good sense of history. And he said to me that night, Tom, the American presidency is the greatest office ever created by the mind of man. And I think there's some truth to it. Yeah. But what, what's your opinion? Uh, well, it worked very well in those days, and it saw us through some very difficult times. Of course, we come to the second American Revolution, uh, as some call it, the Civil War, which tested the endure the uh, permanence yeah. and the durability of uh, 
the system set up in the Constitution. But uh, I'm very curious. We've got to pause in just a moment for the usual reasons. But I'm very curious about uh, how Jefferson's attitude towards Washington, which was initially favorable, began to change and shift uh, even during the years when they uh, were cooperating as president and secretary of state. Yeah, Let's pick yeah. up the story right there after we pause for this. And directly back to Thomas Fleming as we draw from his uh, wonderfully readable new book, The Great Divide, about the relationship between Washington and Jefferson. One of the reviewers of your book um, says uh, that um, uh, this is its central message. George Washington, yes. George Washington led America into new existence. Thomas Jefferson worked very hard to eradicate Washington's work and any credit he might deserve. Is that a fair summation of your thesis? Well, there is some truth to that. Yes, well, he, he he avoided uh, mentioning when he became president. He 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 made said some nice things about George Washington being our great first, the, the, our first and greatest patriot. He never mentioned Washington's presidency. He never said a word in praise of it because he didn't like it. He didn't approve it. What did he disapprove and, of? As, as we said before the break, <clears throat> uh, I think the best place to start is with the creation. Uh, of the Bank of the United States. Uh-huh. This was a brainchild of Alexander Hamilton. He was going to use this device to organize the finances of the country and help pay off our huge Revolutionary War debt. We owe the equivalent of a billion dollars in Revolutionary War debt to France, to Holland, who had loaned us these huge amounts of money. And uh, so we we had to do something very creative, and and this Bank of the United States was a very creative idea. They were going to sell shares in it, and uh, and and create a stock market, and and use the, the the profits that the bank made to help pay off this debt, as I say, and finance the government in general. But Jefferson hated the idea because it would, there was nothing in the Constitution that authorized Congress to create a bank. Uh, <clears throat> Hamilton wrote a brilliant essay that convinced Washington that there were implied powers in the Constitution which enabled the president and Congress to carry out the powers of government that the Constitution gave them. And uh, so Washington signed the bill creating the bank. Jefferson saw this as a, a giant step towards tyranny and and corruption. Oh, he hated, he loved that word. Uh, he, he used it, you know, like a a toxin uh, warning uh, the people that this is what's going to happen. And, and, uh, uh, and uh, he, it, here's how far Jefferson went. When he heard that Richmond merchants were rushing up to Philadelphia <clears throat> to buy shares in the Bank of the United States, was being, which, were being, was, which was being sold there, the, the shares were being sold there and a couple of other cities uh, at, uh, when, the, when the, uh, they first went into business. And Jefferson remarked that they were going up to Philadelphia to buy their federal filth. But, this was just, you know, but this was shares of a legitimate company. And then when he heard that the Bank of the United States was going to form a branch bank that could do business in Virginia, Jefferson told Matt that any Virginian who did business with this with this bank should be arrested and executed for treason against his native state. Well, how does that bear upon his use of executive power when he becomes the third president of the United States? 
he didn't use any executive power. He used it very sparingly in any direct way. He, his, with Jefferson's whole presidency was a leading from behind operation. He, he, he met with the leaders at dinners at his residence and he told leaders of Congress and he told them what they, what he wanted them to do. He had a majority in Congress. His party was running things. And, and, uh, so the, he created the illusion that Congress was running the country. Only when a very large and crucial uh, event uh, transpired uh, did he have to make a decision as president, which had to use he had to use the implied powers. Jefferson authorized Napoleon to send an army to Haiti, which it wasn't called that at the time; it was called San Domingo or Santo Domingo, and uh, they wanted to reconquer the country, which was being run by a black president after a revolution, which was an imitation of the French Revolution. And Jefferson welcomed the, this Napoleonic army. Uh, he wanted to get rid of this, what he called this black dictator. Uh, Jefferson's attitude toward blacks was very, very uh, negative. And, uh, uh, well, what happened was the, the yellow fever destroyed this French army. And uh, Napoleon, uh, his whole plan was to really uh, capture Haiti and then ship the army to New Orleans, where he was going to take over the Spanish territory of New Orleans and uh, and the, the, the rest of Louisiana, all the way out to the Rocky Mountains. And uh, uh, but he he couldn't do it, so he 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 in he. He decided he had to raise money to invade England and really polish them off. So he offered to sell the whole kit and caboodle to Jefferson. And Jefferson had to decide on, on very short notice to say yes. Uh, and there was nothing in the Constitution that said anything about acquiring such a huge amount of territory. That's the famous Louisiana Purchase, which more than doubled the size of the United States instantly. And, and and he had to resort to the implied powers, and moreover, he had to raise the money from the Bank of the United States, the very vehicle that he had spent years condemning. So it was a rather embarrassing moment, but fortunately for Jefferson, his the people in his party, his advisors all around him, they knew how to get out of it. They just ignored the embarrassing side, and they praised Jefferson for doubling the size of the country Without any effusion of blood, do you get do you get the impression? Do you, do you get what I'm I'm trying to say? Yes, there? indeed. They're they're putting Washington down because Washington effused a lot of blood to create the the thirteen free colonies uh, in, and weld them into states. Uh, and uh, and and now they were praising Jefferson because. There was, he did it all peacefully. Well, and, and there's no question in my mind that this was the key to Jefferson's popularity. His, his presidency was going down the tubes until this happened. Everything was going wrong. There's a scandal about him seducing Sally Hemings and having his, his, his mulatto slave and having children by her. That had exploded in his face. Uh, a couple of uh, about a year before the, the Louisiana appeared, he was rescued by this thing, and it made him immensely popular with everybody in the country. When he ran for real, yes, sir. I think we're having phone troubles again. Uh, so I think we'll perhaps try to pause for some commercials uh, while we straighten things out. 
And we return to Thomas Fleming. There seems to have been some temporary disruption of the phone line, sir. Yes, there was. I, my phone went dead, as I was just saying. I'd never had this happen before. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's all the but more I, interesting I, when I, it I happens while you're on the air. But... My apartment, and it, 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 it's, we're, we're, we're back in business, but I'm really so sorry. Well, it's not your fault. Um, no, I just can't figure it out. Well, you know, Bobby Burns uh, had the key to it all um, when he said, uh, the best laid plans of mice and men, gang after glay. That's in the, true, and the Scots. Gang after gladiators go off to stray. And uh, so right, right, our little right. plan went astray for a moment, but I'm glad you're back. Um, let me, uh, j- we've got some email from our listeners, and time sure. now is somewhat short. So let me turn to that. Uh, but first, uh, this basic question When did the two of them come to recognize that they were in a bad relationship? That is Washington and Jefferson. When did uh, they acknowledge that there was a tension and trouble between them? Uh, they had, Jefferson had three confrontational conversations with Washington in which he tried to convince him that Hamilton and the other people in, in the cabinet and, 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 and on the fringes of the cabinet were, were all what he called monocrats, and they were plotting to create an American uh, aristocracy and a king. And Washington repeatedly said to him, I do not think that is happening, and so forth. And then in the in, towards the end of the third conversation, Washington said to Jefferson, I hope you realize you're impugning my intelligence. I am the last person in the world that will ever tolerate an American king. And that's when Jefferson realized that he had lost the argument and he resigned as Secretary of State. Yeah. Um, here is um, an email. Jefferson is always painted as an intellectual. Was Washington also a thinking man? Were either of them great orators? Uh, Jefferson was a pretty good lawyer. Washington had no legal degree whatsoever, so you couldn't uh, you couldn't compare them in this respect whatsoever. Uh, Jefferson did practice law for oh a few years, but not not uh, uh, with any great enthusiasm, uh, and. and uh, uh, but he did show, uh, you know, a rather a rather nice uh, moment of daring when he argued that any uh, person who was born uh, uh, if they, uh, with two with his with his father or mother and grandmother uh, and and grandfather or grandmother both white, if he had two white uh, predecessors uh, and they were and, and also he had black blood, he should be freed. This per, he or she should be freed. And this was not part of the law of Virginia at the time, and uh, he didn't win the case. But it was a very noble thing of him to do. The, the same uh, 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 listener asks, was Washington also a thinking man? What do we really know about the intellectual level of was, George Washington? We know a great deal because we've had a chance to study his 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 uh, his, his library. Yes. And we see the books that he read. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm now t- talking on the phone from New York City, and there's a, there was a library that was open during the time that Washington was president and the, the, the first year of his presidency, he was in New York City. And the, the Society Library, uh, he t- took out from the Society Library a very interesting book on, on international politics, uh, and he obviously read it uh, with great interest. This was not the... Uh, the sort of book that the average uh, schmo would read. That's all there was to it. He was he, his his reading was quite intelligent, 
uh, and and uh, he, he had a wide taste. For instance, the uh, a, 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 a writer from Massachusetts wrote a play, the, the, we consider the first American play, and Washington immediately ordered a, a book, uh, a, a copy of it, uh, printed out uh, as a book. And uh, when when Hamilton and and John Jay uh, and James Madison wrote what we call the Federalist Papers, which was a defense of the Constitution, Washington read every one of those things, and and he read all the other uh, attacks on them, and he said, I speaking as a man who's read everything that's been issued on this controversial question of of, of, of affirming the Constitution, uh, I think I can say your work, he meant the Federalist Papers, will live for the ages. This is, you're not, you're not, this is not a, 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 a stupid uh, a lug of a soldier talking. This is a, a very intelligent man. It's reflected, actually, in his correspondence. The Library of America has a volume of Washington's letters. Uh, yes, I have that letter. I have that. It, and he comes through as uh, not only uh, a man rich in thought uh, and strong in conviction, but he comes through as a master of the language. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that, because I feel the same way. And, you know, I wrote a book, uh, I edited what I should say, as a book called Affectionately Yours, George mm-hmm. Washington. It was published long, long ago. And his, his letter, what I called it was his letters of friendship to people in his family and, and to pe- very close friends when he was even, when he was relaxed, you know. And they are so charming, these letters. He could be very witty uh, and... and uh, I remember well, there was a, a woman who uh, who wrote poems and sent them to him, and she wondered if she'd been bothering him. And he said, no, madam, you haven't been bothering me in the least. We must have dinner together, and I will begin to, I will tell you how you can begin, be, begin your uh, course of penitence. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, here's another email. Uh, please ask your guest if this conflict, and that means between the two men, if this conflict was simply between Washington and Jefferson, or if one of them had an unlikable personality uh, and rubbed uh, others the wrong way also? I I think the answer to that is that they both were very popular men. Uh, But Washington had had an immense uh, addition to his his popularity that we call fame. Uh, he, He was a Teflon politician. And when this British the French rather made the mistake of sending an ambassador over here that that uh, thought that he could push old man Washington as he called him around. Oh. Uh, somebody leaked the, the fact that that the, his name was Edmond Genet. He was going to call Congress all by himself uh, to come and hear him, and old man Washington wasn't even going to be consulted. And this was printed in a newspaper. Washington arranged for it to be leaked, uh, and uh, by the by the head by the John Jay, who was head of the Supreme Court, which made it very convincing. And uh, when 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 that happened, there was this a huge explosion of rage throughout the whole of the United States. People met in little villages, towns, cities, and they sent. Uh, letters of broadsides to Washington telling him that no one will ever uh, replace you in, in our affection and in our faith and so forth. And uh, surprise, surprise, uh, in a few weeks, he, Washington was able to tell uh, Secretary of State Jefferson that perhaps he should ask for uh, Ambassador Genet's recall. Yeah. It's worth remembering, isn't it? And we only have about a minute left. 
that yes. uh, he, Jefferson, also had a bad relationship with his immediate predecessor, the second president of the United yes, States. John Adams, they, they had started as very good friends, but Jefferson really, he was vice president at the time. He went out of his way to yeah. sabotage uh, Adams uh, he, he, because Adams was hostile to France. Uh, his polar, Jefferson's polar star. Yeah. He, he really was a, a, a driven by intense emotions, Jefferson was. Apparently and, so. And that, I think, is the key to understanding him. Well, sir, I thank you most sincerely for joining us, and I should add once again that this is only one of the most recent of some 50 books, uh, many of them devoted to the uh, history of the French, uh, of the American Revolution, though touching, to be sure, as well, upon the French. Uh, yes. Thomas Fleming has been our guest. The book, The Great Divide, will be with you again uh, by uh, tape on uh, Monday, Memorial Day, and then back live on the following Tuesday. If I get drunk, sit all alone, got blues in my head, so I won't be home. Well, now it ain't nobody's business what I do. in the bars If the heels on both my shoes wear down, well baby that's because it ain't nobody's business what I do I'm a nighttime man, so if that's alright with you I'll have breakfast at midnight till I find somebody new Meantime it ain't nobody's business what I do